You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the food we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. This week, Taylor Holiday brings us a story of her family, her white family in Nashville, and their adoption of a Chinese daughter at age 11. She faces a number of culture shocks, and the biggest culture shock is food. Thanks, Taylor, for bringing us this story. Thank you, John T. Yes, her biggest uh, culture shock was definitely food, and it was our biggest shock, too. When my husband and I realized our new daughter was dead set on eating Chinese food only in her American life, we panicked. Um, When most people think about Chinese adoption, they think about babies. But Feng Chong was uh, nearly 12 when we adopted her, and she had a fully formed palate and very strong feelings about Chinese food and her love of it. It was challenging. Refugees are welcome here. Refugees are welcome here. This is a rally in Nashville organized by the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition earlier this spring. I brought my teenage immigrant along, as well as my mom, and three generations of transplanted Tennesseans chanted along and listened to Turk director Stephanie Teatro. all over the state. We've got sisters and brothers in Knoxville, Chattanooga, Memphis, Murfreesboro, Sewanee. Six years ago, my husband Craig and I adopted our only child, Fong Chong, an 11-year-old from Guangzhou, China, and brought her to Nashville. Had it been a decade earlier, say 2001 instead of 2011, I'm not sure I would have brought an almost teenage Chinese girl to live her American life in Nashville, at that time a mid-sized black and white southern city. As the new millennium began, immigrants made up less than 5% of the metro Nashville population, and Asian immigrants less than 1%. But since 2000, the city's foreign-born population has more than doubled, with Nashville welcoming thousands of immigrants and refugees, including Mexicans, Burmese, Vietnamese, Somalians, Iraqis, and Kurds. In 2012, Nashville was even singled out by the Partnership for a New American Economy, a coalition of mayors and business leaders, as the American city with the fastest-growing immigrant population. So I felt that Fong Chung would be welcome here in the new Nashville. And in fact, she was. But I won't lie. It was hard, both inside and outside her home. At age 11, Fong Chong had never been anywhere other than her foster home, school, and small village in the rural outskirts of Guangzhou, one of China's largest cities lying just northwest of Hong Kong. She didn't speak a word of English or have any idea what or where the United States was. She had never seen a white or black person in the flesh, and she had never eaten in a restaurant or tasted any food other than home-cooked Cantonese and Chinese street food in her entire life. At her foster home, Fong Chong ate mostly vegetable-heavy stir-fries and simple soups, with both the vegetables and the rice coming from the family garden that she helped tend. Her dad and I were amazed to hear stories over the coming years, first in her few English words, supplemented with pantomime, later in colorful Chinglish, of her jobs while she lived with her foster family, from age 6 to 11. They ranged from climbing trees to pick the family's lychee crop to plucking the feathers off of just-killed chickens for special occasion meals. Most jaw-droppingly, the family grew all their own rice and she helped with every stage, planting, hand-harvesting with a sickle, loading it into the thresher, and spreading it out to dry on the roof of the house. Some days she got up before dawn to climb up the mountain with her foster grandma and pick fiddlehead ferns, 
which they then boiled and peeled and sold in the market. But her fondest food memories were made outside the home, including the daily breakfast of wonton soup she bought at a street food stall outside her elementary school. When she had been here a few months, she told me that she missed that soup more than anything or anybody in China. But I didn't know until recently why that was so. It's because they have good sauce. They, have, they make good sauce. You put chili on it. You don't just eat soup. I don't, I'm not normal people. I, every time when there's spicy thing, I eat it. So wonton soup, I put spice on it. The good spice that I will never forget. Because my family, my uh, foster family, they don't cook spicy food, which, you know, my, for my breakfast money, I used to buy spicy food because they don't cook spicy food and I'm craving for it. We learned of Fong Chong's love of spice on the first day we met her, when the first thing we did as a family was go to a big box store in Guangzhou to get her some clothes and books. Those necessities were of little interest, but the snack aisle brought her to life, especially some extremely spicy treats she found there. And I saw some chicken feet. I was like, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that. And then when we, when we got back to the hotel, you, I opened it, it's so good, and you guys all tasted me. You guys, oh, uh, you guys have a weird face, like, oh, uh, this is good for you? Like, this is good to you? I just but we think, did. Yeah, you have to. If we not, I would think you guys swear. <laughs> I would think, why are you adapted me if you don't like chicken feet, huh? That's right. We were not, <laughs> we didn't come that far to not have our first meal with you, so. We, yeah, because we tried when, those, I, when you guys first adopted me, feet. I was just crying and don't want to go anywhere because you guys strangers. I don't like to go with strangers. Right. It was the very first day we met you, but at the end of the day, when you ate the chicken feet, it yeah. was when we finally saw you smile. Well, and any, it, you could be any, happy. any food that you gave me, I mean, like, you know, snack, mm-hmm. I used to eat. If you gave me, I would be happy. I can smile all night long. When I eat it, it tastes sim- similar. It tastes like I'm at home. While language, culture, and family dynamics have all been huge obstacles to Fong Chong's happiness in America, the food barrier has been the hardest to overcome. At the beginning, she found almost everything we put in front of her foreign and forbidding. Whether it was pulled pork barbecue, pizza, tacos, or California rolls, and whether we made it ourselves or took her to a restaurant. After three weeks in China, we returned to Nashville with Fong Chong. Her first night home, we prepared a dinner of packaged Korean spicy noodle soup to which we added lots of Asian vegetables. Noodles, spice, and vegetables. We thought by now we understood her taste. But everything about this soup was new to Fong Chong. The noodles were fat and chewy udon instead of the thinner, springier noodles she was used to, and the broth was infused with Korean bean paste, the opposite of light Cantonese broths. She refused to eat it, and we all went to bed frustrated and leery of the road ahead. Hours later, I was startled awake by someone standing next to my bed, hovering over me, speaking in a language my 3 a.m. brain couldn't comprehend. She said urgently, Eventually, I realized she was using the words for to eat, and we headed downstairs in the dark for the first of what would be many, many times. I opened the cupboard and pulled out some cheap instant ramen soup, relieved that she would eat it. Her dad and I did try to introduce Fong Chong to Southern staples and American kid food, She would eat watermelon, bananas, and fried eggs, but sandwiches, hot dogs, chicken nuggets, and cereal were a bust. Cheese was enemy number one. She loathed deep-fried things almost as much, and our desserts were too sweet for her taste. As for hamburgers, one orphanage trip to a McDonald's in Guangzhou right before we met her ruined her for life on one of our country's most iconic foods. But most kids, you can train them to eat it. But I'm a stubborn type. I, you can't train me to eat something I never had before, you know? 
Soon enough, her will to not eat new food was stronger than our will to convince her to. We realized that everything about her new life was scary and strange, including us, and we wanted to comfort her in any way we could. Pan-fried dumplings and stir-fried rice or greens filled many meals, but she quickly tired of the few Cantonese dishes we could make. Three times a day, every day, we struggled to feed her. She was definitely a picky eater, but I don't believe she was singularly so. As a food lover and journalist, I had traveled in China enough to know that while the country boasts numerous, vastly differing cuisines, the Chinese share some common loves. Just as I get an overwhelming craving for cheese after about three weeks in China, feeling I can't eat another bite of rice or have another encounter with something like turtle soup, the typical Chinese person outside her own country misses her noodles and soups and quickly has enough of sandwiches and salad, fried foods and sweets. Fried chicken? Uh, I don't really like fried food that much. Because I feel like when I eat that, so crunchy, there's no nothing for me to chew on, you know? It's just like... I want something that is chewable. I want something that is... You can chew it for a long time and enjoy it. As do most Chinese, Feng Chong believes that the texture of food is as important as the taste. Also like most Chinese, she believes only barbarians eat uncooked food. I don't like American steak because they cook it like half raw and half cooked, which Chinese people think totally is weird. Even though I eat um, blood, but the blood is cooked. It's animal blood. But they eat blood without cooking. I didn't really know my daughter yet, but I knew I wanted to give her a taste of home. Have I succeeded? That's coming up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And there's that donor music. My family's been using my great-grandma's secret fish fry recipe for generations and have never thought to stray. But have you tried catfish delicata? Simmons Farm-raised catfish of Yazoo City, Mississippi has perfected the cut. Think the filet mignon of fish. With some deep skinning and hand trimming, the thick fillets are perfect for grilling, sautéing, and broiling. For their contributions to our summer tables and their support of this podcast, we thank them. So the question is, how did a white American mom and dad raised in Oklahoma and North Carolina respectively, how did they feed a new daughter who would eat Chinese food and Chinese food only? Taylor, how'd y'all do that? Well, we didn't do it at local Chinese restaurants. Nashville has a... Um, a pretty small population of mainland Chinese. So while we have a lot of American Chinese food, the restaurants don't really serve you know, Chinese Chinese food. So yes, we couldn't rely on them for help. Ah, so you figured it out yourself. Indeed, yes. We, um, I kind of realized after the initial panic that even though you know I wasn't going to be a Chinese mom, I could do something that Chinese moms do, which was cook Chinese food. Against my better judgment, my mom Polly and I took FC out to eat American Chinese food during her first month here. I warned Feng Chong that Chinese food in the U.S. is different than in China. I didn't want her to get her hopes up for something that tasted like home. 
We knew not to order General Cho's chicken or any other heavily breaded, deep-fried meat nuggets in a sticky sweet sauce. She wouldn't recognize them as Chinese. But the pork and brown sauce was generic, the Sichuan-style dry-fried green beans lackluster, and definitely not Sichuan. As a lover of vegetables, Fong Chang ate them anyway, along with some steamed rice. But she definitely didn't want to go back. She just it all tastes bad. She was right. We eventually found a Chinese buffet restaurant that stocked half of the buffet with traditional Cantonese and Fujianese food on the weekends, drawing in local Chinese with treats like pig ear salad, drunken chicken, and braised duck, complete with its awful parts. Fong Chong filled her bowls with the kanji, duck neck, and clams in black bean sauce. This would be an occasional treat, but not an everyday solution. So we did it the hard way, by making Chinese food in our own kitchen almost every night, with enough leftover for Fong Chong to take to school for lunch the next day. Mostly I cooked Sichuan food, China's boldest and spiciest cuisine, because that's what I knew. Dishes such as mapo dofu, gong bao chicken, and yuxiang eggplant were in my repertoire, because long before I ever thought about adoption, I had studied and cooked Sichuan food and traveled to the province many times. I had first gone as a journalist and then become so obsessed with the food and the people who worked with it that I organized culinary tours in Sichuan led by local Chengdunese for many years. I hadn't expected FC to like Sichuan food and didn't understand why or how a girl from Guangzhou, home to China's most subtle, least spicy cuisine, was such a chili fiend. But I was mightily relieved that she was. She was an honorary lame, or spicy girl, as Sichuan's women are known, just like her new mom. Um, you cook Sichuan's food, which is that is weird, because I was born in Guangzhou, which is in Cantonese area, and somehow I just start loving the Sichuan food, which fit my personality. Ma and la mixed together is the perfect mixture you can make in Sichuan food, you know. That Sichuan flavor, she says, captures her own essence, is ma la with ma referring to the tingly, numbing sensation of Sichuan peppercorn and la to the burning heat of chili peppers. But it's bold taste in general that appealed to her. I like sour and spicy. That's how, that's how you make it good. Without those two ingredients, you can't make anything. At the beginning, however, I floundered, overwhelmed by the realization that my Chinese cooking hobby would now be a three-times-a-day job. While Fong Chong alternately responded with fight or flight to the stresses of her new life, my response was to freeze, immobilized by the fear that I couldn't please her. Instead of cooking the Sichuan dishes I knew, I relied on dishes that seemed easier to cook and eat, and they often went uneaten. The truth was that I was afraid she would reject my Sichuan cooking, which I had worked so hard to master, and in effect reject me. But eventually I snapped out of fear and into action. I can do this, I told myself. I may not look Chinese act Chinese, or speak Chinese, but I can cook Chinese. I realized it was the least, and the most, I could do to help make FC's American life more palatable. When I first made the Sichuan classic Dan Dan noodles for her, she was in awe and disbelief. You know how to make this and no make for me, she said. Still, I struggled to feed an always hungry and preternaturally discerning Chinese preteen. We had some rough days. Weeks. Years. In 2014, after three years as a family, I finally kicked myself into high gear by starting a blog about cooking Sichuan in America. Through it, I publicly committed myself to becoming a better Sichuan cook, to learning and eventually creating the Chinese family recipes that I will pass down to my Chinese daughter. 
I called it the Mala Project. Not only because intensely numbing hot mala is the defining taste of Sichuan cuisine, but also because older child intercultural adoption is its own kind of mala project. Often challenging, sometimes explosive, but for me at least, more than worth it. A fiery beginning that evolved into intense love and devotion. I asked Feng Chong if it was worth it to her. As you give him a best friend, that's the only thing that means to me much, and food. The early days, I just want my friends because they act like family to me and suddenly somebody else pull me off, pull me into somewhere that I don't even really know. And then later on, when I get back to her, I f- we were strangers. So later on, I feel like, oh, family is the, the important things and friends could be come and go. Food, you can make it, learn how to make so yeah. Well, let's make this as usual. I need you to um, be my sous chef. Nowadays, Feng Chong joins me in the kitchen as often as not. Please, the green (laughs) onions, the ginger and the garlic. Feng Chong and I are making a dish called dry-fried eggplant. And as with many quick-cooking stir-fries where timing is everything, it helps to work as a team. Okay, what do we need to do? Well, you're going to man the walk. Man the walk? Girl the walk. Yeah, what do you mean man? And I'm going to add the stuff. Sure, okay. We don't want to burn this. So I'm going to start with some chili oil. Put the garlic in. Where is it? Those are good for fast. Okay. A little bit of uh, six-pound peppercorn. Whole. And some whole dried chilies. Move that around pretty quickly. Mm, wow, it's really good. How do you say dry fried eggplant in Mandarin? Gambianjiezi. As Feng Chong has grown older, she has become an invaluable cooking partner, tracking down recipes on Chinese websites and translating them for me. She also translates labels on products as we shop every Saturday at the international market and menu items when we travel to larger cities like Atlanta and Los Angeles and search out Chinese Chinese restaurants. Feng Chong went to middle school and the first year of high school at mostly black and white public schools in inner city Nashville. For at least the first two years, she had virtually no idea what was being said or taught in class and no comprehension of mainstream American culture and no way to make real friends. Saturday mornings, she went to Chinese school, which had a small community of mostly younger, mostly Chinese-American kids. There was one fellow older adoptee from Taiwan whom she could talk to and who became a close friend. She still goes to that school every Saturday morning, only now, at age 17, she's advanced out of the classes and is a volunteer teacher's assistant in the younger classes. Her Mandarin and Cantonese are still fluent, and her Americanese, as she calls it, is now too. Feng Chong is happy at Nashville Chinese School, but she's even happier at Miss Saigon, the Vietnamese restaurant she and I have eaten lunch at almost every single Saturday for more than six years. That's hundreds of bowls of pho with meatballs, her dish of choice. I don't know, do you remember the first time we had Vietnamese? Probably not. It was probably, you'd been here maybe... Maybe a couple months? Yeah, a month or two. And I finally thought, well, let's try this. It's not Chinese, but at least it is uh, Asian and it's a soup. And I know she likes soups. Yeah, even when they tell me that, I was like, huh? What are you talking about? Because my English is terrible, you know? Right. But I ordered you pho. And then from that time on, I started loving it. Right. And then I go there every week after my Chinese school. <clears throat> what do you like about pho? Does it remind you of Chinese food? No. It doesn't? No, because nothing tastes like Chinese noodle. Like, you know, in, when I was young, when I go to school, I, have, I always go buy some, like, $5 um, 
dumpling soup. They don't taste like the same, but I just, I just like noodle soup because I'm Asian. <laughs> Korean food was the next cuisine FC allowed into her world, lured by the banchan, or spicy pickled side dishes. Slowly, she also added Thailand's tiger tear beef salad, ordered extra hot, as well as some Lao, Malaysian, and even Southern Indian food, though curry was an acquired taste for her. When she made a friend from Azerbaijan, she learned she liked the similarly Persian-inspired Kurdish cuisine in Nashville, its rice-based dishes the major draw. Lately, she has even come around to liking some Mexican and Latin American food, as long as it's something sour and spicy, like ceviche or habanero salsa. But still, she has no interest in Nashville's smoky, whole-hog barbecue, its spicy fried hot chicken, or its meat-and-three lunches, some of mine and Craig's favorites. In fact, Fong Chong eats almost no American-born food. I feel like I'm not going to, this whole year, even though I'm going to be here 20 years, 30 years, whatever, I don't feel like I'm going to adopt American food at all, you know? don't feel like I will change my mind at all. Fong Chong also has almost no American-born friends. I talked to her about why this is so. In my first year of high school, the first week of school, I met three friends who's from different countries. One is from Vietnam, named V. One is from Cuba, called Anna. Another one is from Sri Lanka, called Nefmi. Why do you think those three were the friends that you made? Well, I feel like they have come from different country and we're connected with their new from this country, same as me. I mostly pick the friends from different country. They just come here because the people who grow up in America is like they, they're for me a little bit adult. And what do you mean by that? Well, they're, How first, are they their adult? English is so good and they talk about all those shopping and those like TV stars that I don't know and movie stars that I have no idea who they are. And so, yeah, we don't have much comments. But those people aren't always Chinese. So how do you explain the fact that you have things to talk about with a, a Vietnamese or a Cuban? Well, because they're not as bossy, you know what I mean? Like, because those American people, they, I mean, the people who born in America and they're American, they're a little bit like, I know more English than you do. Probably you should listen a little bit to me. And I don't like that. We do know what she means. That's why for her second year of high school, we moved her to Tennessee's most diverse high school, with students from every part of the globe speaking more than 40 different languages. As we had hoped, it has given her more equal and steady footing, more confidence to speak up and be herself. Only one generation ago, John Overton High was still a majority white school, located as it is in a Tony neighborhood of South Nashville. But as the immigrant population exploded and congregated in the far south of the city, Overton's complexion changed completely. It is now roughly equal parts Latino, Caucasian, Black, including African, Middle Eastern, which is mostly Iraqi and Kurdish, and Asian, which is mostly Vietnamese, Burmese, and Nepalese. Most of FC's friends at Overton, the ones she eats lunch with, are Korean and Zami refugees, whose families came from Myanmar by way of Thai refugee camps. I'm not sure Fong Chong could articulate this yet, but I have realized that she is as much immigrant as Chinese, and as much refugee as immigrant. In many ways, she is a refugee. She was separated from her birth family and her birth country against her will, 
and ended up in our family and country with special immigration status through no actions of her own. Trauma and loss, not free choice, brought her to America. It has taken me years to understand this, even though I was the one who brought her here. And though I was painfully aware that our gain as a family came at the expense of the culture she knew and loved. So it's no wonder that she has gravitated toward other immigrants and refugees. It's not even surprising that she identifies so closely with their food. But meanwhile, with the relatively recent influx of mainland Chinese to the U.S., her own food is having a renaissance in this country. No longer just homogenous Chinese, restaurants now specialize in Sichuan, Shanghai, Northerner Dongbei Chinese, Uyghur Muslim Chinese, and more. These restaurants are refusing to assimilate, to adopt just one definition of American. And so is Fang Chang. I'm born Chinese and I get used to eating Chinese food. If I don't eat Chinese food, I, I don't think I'm Chinese anymore. You know what I mean? I, even though I live in America, but I still have to be Chinese. I can't just suddenly turn out to be American Chinese. I just say who I am. The song in this podcast, Banjo Gujung Pickin' Girl, was written and performed by acclaimed Chinese musician Wu Fei and Grammy-winning artist Abigail Washburn, Nashville residents who have a duo project in the works where they marry their Chinese and Appalachian folk influences. A dozen years ago, Abby was the person who first encouraged me to travel to Sichuan and, not incidentally, set me straight on the correct pronunciation of the province. If you care about food, she said, you have to go to Chengdu. And she was right. And her words changed my life in every possible, beautiful way. Taylor Holiday is a writer and Szechuan food purveyor who lives in Nashville. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. The managing editor for this podcast and all other SFA content is Sarah Camp Milam. Our intern is Robin Miniter. You can find photos from the Holiday family and their Szechuan feasts on our website. That's southernfoodways.org. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... SFA's Oral History Project, Charlotte Central Avenue Corridor, documents stories of Southerners shaping a new Charlotte, including Tuan Nguyen. Tuan recently took the reins of Lay sandwiches from his parents, Lay and Min Nguyen. It took me a while to kind of like decide if I want to really take over the business. I've seen, you know, what entails. Um, it's just really hard work, long hours. And then I told him, okay. It was something about uh, what my parents worked really hard on and just to see to go to waste. So I just want to kind of get my hands on it and see if I actually can do it, keep up with it. It's a Charlotte thing. I just want to think that we brought something to Charlotte. To explore the full oral history project, visit southernfoodways.org. While you're online, consider becoming a member. Membership dollars support all SFA work, including films, oral histories, and this podcast. Coming up next time on Gravy, we head to Albany, Georgia with Roz Bentley. Roz brings us a portrait of the civil rights movement hostesses who made activism possible. That's next time on Gravy. And as you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, not war.